You're listening to Uniquely Beautiful Stories with Heather McIneer, a place for you to find encouragement to fully live your uniquely beautiful life. Hi friends, welcome back to the Uniquely Beautiful Stories podcast. I'm your host, Heather McIneer, and I'm so glad you're tuning in with us today. I want to thank you for joining us each week as we bring you messages of redemption and beauty from real life stories in hopes that you will find encouragement to go out and fully live your own uniquely beautiful story. Our podcast is brought to you by Cedar Creek Dental Associates. If you're near Oklahoma City looking for quality dental care, be sure to check out their website at okcsmile.com. I promise you'll find an amazing staff, a gorgeous office, and most importantly, excellent dental care to keep you smiling for years to come. Also, if this podcast has been an encouragement to you, it would mean so much if you would subscribe, give us a review or a rating, and pass along the episode link to a friend so that others will be able to find and hear these uniquely beautiful stories. Friends, today you're listening to episode number 19, and my guest is the beautiful Sarah Rodriguez Rhodes. Sarah has experienced more loss and heartache in a short period of time than most people will literally ever endure in a lifetime. Her story has been touched by infertility, miscarriage, widowhood after the loss of her husband to cancer, single parenthood, a miraculous pregnancy, followed by the near loss of her baby daughter, and now remarriage to her high school sweetheart and blending two families together. And through this all, Sarah was determined to hold tightly to her faith, inspire others, and use her pain for a purpose. Sarah's story has actually been covered by People Magazine, and her writing has been featured on Huffington Post and various other magazines and blogs. Sarah spreads her message of hope through her blog, journeyofsarah.com, and also shares her story in the memoir she wrote entitled From Depths We Rise, and it was published in 2016. Recently, Sarah has married her high school sweetheart, D'Angelo, and together they have a blended, multiracial, combined crew of five of the greatest kids on the planet. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's so good to be here. (laughs) You're welcome. This is so fun. Okay, so tell us the ages of these five great kids that you guys are raising together. Okay, so we have a 14-year-old, a 12-year-old a 10-year-old, a 6-year-old, and a 3-year-old. Oh, my goodness. So we just had one starting high school, and then we have another in pre-K. So <laughs> oh I'm like, wide swap. Girl, you're all over the place. <laughs> yes, oh, yes. my goodness. And are all five of them with you guys full-time, or do you do some back and my forth? My husband, we have them 50% of the time, the older three, and then the youngest two we have all the time. Well, I was thinking this morning about when we met. So I believe it was back in the fall of, like, 2015, mm-hmm. We have a mutual friend, and we mm-hmm. both attended an event that was in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. I remember that our friend um, invited you. You were just in the throes of grief mm-hmm. from losing your first husband, Joel. Mm-hmm. And so I got to hear a little bit of your story then, and it was kind of like a little getaway for you to have mm-hmm. a minute to breathe. Yes. And um, you had Milo. He was, how old would he have been? Nine. Yeah, so you had a baby. Just lost a husband. So I really got to know you then and then have just followed your story ever since. And there's been a few more twists and turns since then. Yes. Yes. So (laughs) the pain and the the crazy wasn't over. And so just following along and then being able to, to be one of the thousands of prayer warriors that have Mm -hmm. carried you through over the years. It's just been an honor and just really special to watch you walk through this very unique story mm-hmm. <laughs> that very. God's writing in your yes. life. So yes. I would love to give our listeners a little bit of context and just kind of take them back to your first 
marriage and kind of how you guys met and just how mm-hmm. everything started out. And then you can go from there and we'll just see where, <laughs> where okay. this conversation takes us. Okay. Well, I met Joel in 2005. Um, he was living in New York at the time, as was I. I was born and raised in Oklahoma, but had always had this dream to live in New York. So kind of on a whim, I just packed my bags and moved there. Like I got a job. My parents, that was the one thing they were like, can you at least be gainfully employed before you like (laughs) move halfway across the country? So I was like, okay. So I convinced this woman to give me a job over the phone, packed my bags, left and went Mm -hmm. to New York and met Joelle within about the first month. And he was born and raised New Yorker. Like, we couldn't be any different. He grew up in Spanish Harlem in a really rough area. Um, And it's just funny that we were attracted to each other (laughs) and that we ended up together because we were such opposites. But we did. And we were engaged within the first 10 months and married within a year and a half. So everything happened really quickly. Um, And we eventually left New York and moved back to Oklahoma just because cost of living is just astronomical there. So we moved here and we wanted to start a family. And that was my first really significant event that happened in my life Mm -hmm. because we struggled with infertility for years. Um, doctors could never explain why. Mm. Um, they just said unexplained, which is, was the diagnosis. And that is so frustrating because you're like, I just want to know why so I can fix it. You right. Know? Right. And, you know, just having surgeries and medicines and nothing worked. Mm. And that was my first real time where I really wrestled with why, you know, cause I guess up until that point I'd led a pretty charmed life. Yeah. And this was my first encounter that I'd have where I just did not understand why things were not happening the way that I had wanted and desired mm. and hoped and wished for. So we were right in the thick of that. And we were and this about, had gone on for what, like a year or two? Uh, it was about five years wow. that we had tried. Yeah. Wow. And okay. it was all said and done. So it was a very long journey. You know, we went to all the specialists, we did all the tests, I mean, yeah. everything and it, that in and of itself is just so exhausting, yes. you know, to have to go through all that medically. Yeah. Um, so we'd gotten to the point where everything that we had tried hadn't worked. So we were about to start IVF and that's when my late husband was um, diagnosed with cancer, with kidney (sighs) cancer, very unexpected. Um, We just ran a half marathon like three weeks before that. And so now all of a sudden we're shifting from this, you know, years and years and years battle of infertility to the battle of cancer, which is a whole other beast in in and of itself. Um, And Mm -hmm. so he, battled for a year. He went to remission. Hmm. And so during that time, we decided to go ahead and go forth with our planning, um, our family planning, because we had banked some sperm before chemo, which I just feel compelled to tell anybody, if you are in the midst of cancer and you're talking about chemo and all these things, just to safeguard as much as you can, if you haven't been able to have children, Mm -hmm. because chemo can leave you um, sterile. Yes. And thankfully we knew that. And so we kind of hedged our bets against that. So as soon as he was done with chemo, we were like, we're jumping right back in. Mm. And I was able to get pregnant on my very first try um, with my son, Milo. And a couple weeks before Milo's due date, um, Joel went in for just a typical checkup and they found a spot on his lung, which they biopsied. And then a couple days after Milo was born, we found out that it had metastasized to his lung. Oh my goodness. So here I am with this new baby, you know, and it just seemed like this, I always say beauty from ashes, because that's the only way I can describe it. Like this beauty from ashes, redemptive moment of finally becoming a mom and having this dream come true. But it's juxtaposed with this 
horrible event and this horrible illness mm. fighting it again. Because mm. you so, guys really at that point, I mean, he had a, a very positive prognosis and they uh-huh. thought, I mean, you thought it's behind us. Yes. Like we're a family now and we're going to move forward with yes, the rest of our life. Yeah. We thought, okay, that's past us. And that was horrific, but you know, it's just, it, we, he went into remission quickly and we got it all and it's fine. Mm. And so for it to come back and when it becomes metastatic cancer, you instantly know it's more serious uh-huh. um, because it's spreading and there's, I think more fear involved because you feel like you're losing your grip on things a little bit, you Mm -hmm. know? And so we went through another year of chemo and it it shrunk and they thought that it was gone. So they had us take a couple week break. And in that break from chemo, it completely grew back to the pre-chemo size. It was about three to four weeks, um, less than a month. And so it was aggressive. And at that point they, had him have a surgery um, to remove it, and he had a series of strokes, and he ended up passing away um, after that. And so there I was with a one-year-old child, and I'm suddenly widowed. So I was just out of my 20s, you know. My goodness. And I was just like, what now? You know? Yeah. And I thought that my life was over, and... Well, and it wasn't even the cancer that mm-hmm. that he lost yes. his life to, that it was this series of strokes. Uh-huh. I mean, is that, have doctors said since then that that can happen from chemo or was that just something completely unrelated? I think that anytime you go under the knife and you go under general anesthesia, there's always risks. Okay. And those are kind of the risks that we always just breeze past and sign mm. the forms, you know. True. But for him, especially when your health is in a delicate place, mm. there's all kinds of things okay. that can happen. And so for him, it was just complications and that was the unexpected part because we, you know, you, you knew that his life was in the balance, but we just didn't expect it to come to that kind of end. Right. And so that felt shocking, even though we had been, you know, fighting for years for it to just end that way. It was so shocking. Absolutely. And And then Milo was under a year or just about a year old. He was a year old. He had turned one year of two or three weeks before. Okay. I'm remembering this and we will talk about your book um, later, but I remember in your book, there's a picture of, Mm -hmm. Milo with Joel and it was for his birthday mm-hmm. and in the hospital. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. So with those last few days and, and weeks with Joel, was his health pretty fragile or did you guys have some good, good conversation, good lucid moments or it was fragile because after his first stroke, they didn't think that he would recover, but he did come out of it, but he was paralyzed on his left side of his body. Mm-hmm. So he was in a wheelchair and the, picture just looked completely different and I'm mm. sitting here like okay so now I have a husband when we were battling cancer and now he's ha- paralyzed on half of his body and I'm literally having to help carry him to wow. the you know the restroom when he needs to use the restroom so the picture was just ever shifting um and just complete chaos and confusion and after a couple weeks in rehab was when he had the last stroke and he okay. never recovered. So um, the strokes just kept coming from yeah, that initial one that really devastated his body. Mm-hmm. And then his body just couldn't mm-hmm. calibrate after that. Yes, yeah, exactly. And were you at the hospital or were you home with baby and they had to call you? or I was... That- I was home with my son when he had a very devastating one that landed him back in the hospital. And then he ended up on um, life support and they said, they declared him brain dead. They said there's no brain activity after that. So I had to make the decision as the wife to like pull medical care, which is the most horrific decision Mm. anybody 
could have to make. Um, and mm. you'll hear more in my story. I had to do make that choice again for another family member, yes. but it's, it was, it was really hard and really difficult, but I was in the room with him mm. when he passed and mm. like, you can never prepare yourself for a moment like that. Mm. No, no. Those are the goodbyes that we just never think we're going to have to say, mm-hmm. even, you know, it's interesting that you would say you can never prepare yourself, even having gone through a year mm-hmm. of um, cancer and of probably conversations and even like mentally thinking like, you know, this is what we're praying against. This is not what we want. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just that moment that you, there's no words yeah. for it. Especially in our age, because, you know, in your thirties, you still feel kind of that air of invincibility. Oh, and for sure. Your friend, like my friend's husband's, nobody else was facing cancer oh. and possible, you know, death. I mean, nobody that I knew my age was walking through anything close to what we were walking through. Mm. And so I feel like that just made it all the more shocking. And even for our friends, like so many of them have told me just what a life turning point that was for mm. them, um, just to understand how fragile life is and how you just never know you know yeah, it's like that reality check mm-hmm. for you and everyone around you that's mm-hmm. such a good point mm-hmm. um so here you are 31 you said mm-hmm. I mean barely in your 30s yeah you have a new baby mm-hmm. he's just barely one mm-hmm. and you are waking up to widowhood mm-hmm. um what what was that that little season like mm-hmm. where you kind of just I mean I would assume you're in a fog for a while yeah. and then the the fog lifts and you realize mm-hmm. like this is my real reality. This is my new normal. Yeah. That whole first year, I don't have a lot of remembrance or especially the first six months. There's a lot of real patchy holes, Mm -hmm. um, which is normal for grief. I think the hardest part was just not knowing any other widows. I literally knew nobody anywhere close to my age. I mean, of course I knew widows that were older, um, and kind of the more natural cycle of life, but I knew nobody my age enduring what I was enduring. And my friends, they were trying their hardest, but they had had nothing to go off of or compare it to, you know, because none of us had gone through this. And so I think that that was one of the hardest parts for me was just not having anybody who understood. And mm-hmm. that kind of compounded the grief because I yes. just didn't have anywhere to really go with it. And even mm-hmm. when I would talk to friends and, you know, of course I went through counseling and that was like critically important, but just, just constantly feeling like out of place in life and just out of place in, I guess, all aspects yeah. of life and all areas. Yeah. When you think back, can you think of anything that was helpful? Although there were so many things that just felt like Mm -hmm. out of context and like, this is just not right, Mm -hmm. you know, but was there anything that maybe friends or family did or, and you mentioned counseling, Mm -hmm. obviously that's huge, Mm -hmm. but um, as a woman um, encouraging others, is there anything you can think of that was actually really helpful that you would encourage women to do for someone? Yes, absolutely. I talk about this a lot and that kind of the common phrase that we say a lot to people is like, if you need anything, let me know. But I think that what people don't realize is that then puts the responsibility on me to reach back out to you, to reach back out to me. And that was really difficult for me. Number one, because I'm not one to typically ask for help. But Mm -hmm. number two, to even reach out to somebody sometimes would take all of the energy reserves that I had. Mm -hmm. So I so appreciated the friends that didn't ask me to ask them for help. Mm. They would just show up sometimes with dinner on my porch and say, here you go. Mm. Or the girlfriends that would just send flowers just because, Mm. um, like my first Valentine's day, I got so many flower bouquets (laughs) for my girlfriends. Like I just had like the shelf, just all (laughs) the vases from like all the flower arrangements. 
yeah, just like being there without even being asked. And yes. sometimes just showing up with a chick flick saying, hey, we're going to laugh and we're going to eat ice cream. And I'm yeah. like, okay. You know, <laughs> I couldn't have um, even thought that that was at times things that I needed. But mm. it's just like instinctually they knew like just show up, mm. you know, just be there. And it doesn't even have to be a big thing. Like bring one carton of ice cream and two spoons and we'll just chat on the back porch. And yes. so those kinds of things and people just anticipating what I could possibly need before I even asked for it. That was mm. so huge for me. That's so good. Uh, that's such a good word for no matter what the struggle is, mm-hmm. you know, and when we know someone who's struggling in a dark, hard place, no matter what the context, that's such a good yeah. encouragement of just, just show up and yeah. just think, what would I want? Like, yeah. okay, we need to eat, mm-hmm. let's eat or mm-hmm. let's laugh. And, and, and I like that too, because um, I think sometimes I, I know I've been in this place as women, we, we feel this pressure that like, we need to show up and fix it, mm-hmm. or we need to show up with like this real powerful word that's going to encourage you and, you know, give you hope for the rest of your evening. And I think sometimes in those hangouts, the Lord gives a word to somebody and they, they're able to leave you with encouragement. But I would guess that most of the time it was just like their presence <laughs> that was encouraging yeah. your heart. And I think people fight awkwardness because they're like, I don't know what to say. And I'm like, you don't have to say anything. You don't even have to talk about, you know, what I'm walking through. Just like, let me lead the way. And a lot of times mm. I would just open up and start talking and they wouldn't even have to ask questions. Mm. But sometimes so I didn't even need to talk. Sometimes I just needed to laugh or sometimes I just needed to hear about like, tell me about your life. Like what's going on in your life? I just want to hear about, you know, other people. And I just want some lighter moments Mm. in the midst of so much heaviness. So it takes a lot less than I think that we put the pressure on Mm. ourselves to deliver. Yeah, absolutely. And so in the midst of all this, you're, you're a woman who's going through grief for the first time in your life. The most devastating grief any of us who are married can Mm -hmm. picture losing our spouse but you're also raising a toddler for the first time in your life. And those days are hard and long and exhausting. What was that little period like with you and Milo? Like, Well, I always say that Milo was my purpose. I tear up every time I say that. But he was the reason that I had to keep going. He was the reason that I had to get up every morning for, to get out of bed. He was the reason that I still had to laugh and have joy and yeah. wonder at things to encourage him to be that way as mm-hmm. well. And I realized that I was setting the tone in my house and Mm. it was okay for him to see me cry and it was okay for him to see me sad, but he also needed to be able to see um, a mom that was just a fighter and determined Mm. to move forward and to put our family on our back and move us forward. Mm. And so that's what I did every day. And I was, um, I knew that I would only have this sweet time with him Mm -hmm. once. So I was just really determined to pour into him. And we had lots of sweet moments and grew so close. Our bond to this day between he and I, we have just a very special, you know, because it was just he and I, I mean, he was, he's very protective by nature, but he just kind of stepped into that role of being protective a little too much at times. I'd be like, listen, you're two, you don't, you know, one or two, you don't have to take this responsibility on your shoulders you know, and I would freak out if anybody would say, you're the man of the house. It's like, no, he's not. He's a toddler. He's a baby. That's all he needs to focus on. And just let me focus on being the rest. Mm. Um, but I just tried to make our house a safe place, um, to talk about anything, to talk about any emotion that we were feeling. And Mm. he's so young. I don't think he remembers. Well, he said now that he doesn't really remember any of it. He has no memory of his dad. In some parts, in some ways, I kind of appreciate that he doesn't have very vivid memories of of that time. such a hard time. Yeah. But how sweet of God to give you 
that little piece of joy, mm-hmm. like you said, every day. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can't imagine had you been alone through all of that, yes. that the grief that season probably would have lasted even longer and been even heavier because mm-hmm. he, he gave your heart that joy every day and a little bit of laughter. And, you know, I've raised three kids myself, so I know that little season is so fun and there are so many and they snuggle and they cuddle and they fill you with that. Like, you know, they, they fill your heart with love. And so I can only imagine how helpful that was through your grieving process Mm -hmm. to have that and that reason to get out of bed. Like Mm -hmm. you said, I mean, there's no, there's no laying here under the covers all day long when you, even if I wanted to, I couldn't because I had a, you know, a toddler expecting Cheerios and exactly. to watch dinosaurs right on television. <laughs> so I had to get up and keep going every day. Exactly. But, you know, it was what I needed. And I was yeah. so grateful to have Milo and not be walking it alone. Oh, he's so cute. Oh, my Thank goodness. You. I hope our listeners will look and follow you on Instagram because yeah. he is so handsome. He's the one cheesing and hamming <laughs> in all the photos. So he's, he's a little goofball. He's a doll. Yeah. Well, I'll never forget when I heard through our mutual friend that you were having another baby. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm sure that that was interesting for people in your life. And I know it was something that, and you write about this in your book, that was a ton of prayer and thought and conversation that you had with a lot of people before you made a decision. So will you share with us a little bit how that whole thing came? Yes, came about? because we had done IVF, I had this very weird life predicament after the death of Joel, which was I had two embryos left in storage. And um, IVF is still somewhat new on the scene. So there are different rules in different states and how different clinics operate. But the way that our clinic operated was they did not destroy embryos and they would not. So I had the choice to either use them, adopt them out, um, pay indefinitely to keep them in storage, which is not cheap. Mm. Um, So after he died, I had it was just the weirdest thing to think, okay, we have these embryos in storage and what am I going to do? You know, I, I, we had always thought, well, we could adopt them out. But then after his death, I was like, there's no way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had had a, a conversation. Absolutely. You don't want a child out there somewhere. Absolutely. And so and you um, talk about this in your book, uh, what you guys talked yes, about. Yes. We had had a conversation when he was in rehab, just randomly one day, he's like, you and I are going to have another baby and it's going to be a girl. And I'm like, what? You know, it just was so out of the blue, literally came from nowhere. And he was like, you know what to name her. And it was this name that we had talked about years prior um, that I had learned about through a dream. I mean, it was just like this whole series of events. But after his death, I kept kind of referring back to that conversation. And I was thinking he kept saying we were going to have this baby and it was going to be a girl. And so, you know, talking to all, I mean, it was like a collaborative thing before I did it, talking to my parents, my pastors and my friends and all these people. And just like at the end of the day, I had to go with my gut. And I felt like if my child was supposed to be, um, when I implanted the embryos that I would get pregnant, I mean, there's only like a 30% chance, you know? So I knew that I had a greater chance of it not working, but sure Mm -hmm. enough, I implanted them and I became pregnant with a baby and it was a little girl, just like (laughs) you. He had predicted and said. And how old was Milo when, when you guys became a family of three? Two. He was two years okay. old. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And by this time in your journey, would you say, and I know this, the stages of grief kind of go on forever and mm-hmm. it still, I'm sure it comes in waves, but would you say you were more through the really severe stages of grief and kind of on the other side of it and starting to think future forward? Mm-hmm. Like I definitely waited until I felt like I was at a healthy place. I didn't, you know, I couldn't be pregnant and have a healthy pregnancy if I was in that, mm-hmm. the really deep throes True. and the crying all the time. And so I waited to make sure that I was 
um, in a good place. And I had actually planned to wait about six additional months, mm-hmm. but I just couldn't, I had this month in my head of February. I just kept thinking huh. February and for whatever reason. And so that's when I did it in wow. February and yeah, became pregnant. And I mean, the craziest day in the whole pregnancy to me is still the day that I found out on the ultrasound that it was a girl. Oh. I was just thinking, it's just like he said, it's, you wow. know, it's so unbelievable. What, did you have any friends or family with you when you went? What, what yes, my mom and my little sister and a girlfriend and everybody was shaking their heads because they all knew the story. Yes. And I mean, if we would have gone in and they would have said, boy, we would have been just as happy. Yeah. But I mean, just the fact that it was a girl, it was just... It was just mm. so crazy. <laughs> and it's like that the Lord, you know, gave Joel that little knowledge yeah, before he... that glimpse. Yes. And that's something that I can tell her later on yes. in life is just that, like, your your dad and I had a conversation about you and before you were, even came to be and you were wanted and loved, like, yes. before you were a thought, before you were even in existence. Uh, and so that's a really cool thing. That's that so all cool. And you guys named her together even, really. Mm-hmm. You yeah, know, Because that's the name you had talked about. Absolutely. It's just incredible. Yeah. So you now become a single mom to two babes. Mm-hmm. So you have a two-year-old and then a new baby. Mm-hmm. Um, in your mind, are you just thinking, okay, this is our this is our future. We're mm-hmm. going to be this sweet little family of three, mm-hmm. and yeah, we're just going to move forward. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I talk about this more in my book. After her birth, we have this whole thing where um, she contracted bacterial meningitis. We were back in the hospital. She almost death. Um, died. She had just this miraculous moment where so she lived despite what every doctor said. Um, and she was how? Remind me. She, she was, was two weeks old gosh. when she first went to the hospital. So I, you know, I had. She's the family member I was talking about earlier that I had to pull another family member off the vent. And mm. so, you know, the story just kept progressing and continuing. And by the grace of God, she lived. And I will never forget. I mean, we were you were posting regularly, mm-hmm. and we were praying. My kids were praying. They. Mm-hmm. It was like, baby Alice, you know, Mm -hmm. she's, I mean, it was touch and go and she, her body wasn't Mm -hmm. finding it. Mm -hmm. Correct. And Mm -hmm. she was, and how many days was she? A month. She was a month old when we removed her from the vent. She had stopped breathing along with it and was just seizing nonstop and had terrible prognosis. And so when we removed her from the vent, they said that she would pass quickly and she did not. She she got stronger and breathed and lived and now she's she's the three-year-old she's the baby of the family but I definitely thought kind of from that moment forward it was just like okay you know at that point that was when I quit my corporate job um to stay home and just take an extended period of time just to take care of her Hmm. and just be with my family and kind of figure out what was next and in that period of time was when I was contacted by a literary agent I wrote the book and all these media outlets started picking up on the story because of her, you know, so that wasn't her your, life. That wasn't your plan all along. No. Like after you lost your husband, it wasn't like you started writing and thinking this is going to be a story. There was a period of time when I, you know, I had started blogging years prior. And so I was always writing, but I hadn't had this, this big thought, well, I'll write a book. Okay. You know, that was always kind of, well, maybe one day, you know, but after her, that was when I was contacted and it was like, okay. And I was contacted by publishers. And, and people just, just heard through like through social media uh-huh. and through your, because I mean, I was one of those, like you were, you were updating us. I remember you saying like, I'm in the hospital and I'm yeah. holding a baby and I'm typing yeah. and you know, you would go away to little corners and type and mm-hmm. we were all just waiting to hear your updates. And yes. so I guess because of the attention to the blog, mm-hmm. so yes. bigger, 
media channels heard about it. Yes, and it just kept getting bigger and bigger, and it was read in like 150 or 160 countries all around the world. Oh my god. And we were getting upwards of about a million visitors a day just to check in on her story. So at its height, it was just crazy and I was getting emails from people just from places I'd never even heard of so it was just like when I was in the hospital with her I was like this is just really bigger than us and I don't really understand the whys or the reasons for any of this but I just was very aware of how many eyes were on us Mm. and how we like what do we want to do with our story what do we want to be and we just wanted to be hope we just wanted to be light and darkness and so that was what we tried to be and I felt um I felt that even in the hospital and even Mm. in the darkest days, like people are watching, you have a chance Mm. to show them that the story is so much greater than all of us. And you really did. You, um, I mean, I'm sure those blogs are still, those Mm -hmm. posts are still out there. People Mm -hmm. can go back and read them, but your the atmosphere, the attitude in your blog was hopeful. It was, you were also super honest Mm -hmm. and the, the statistics and the prognosis was not looking good. And you were honest about that, but there was, definitely was just an attitude of hope and continuing to point people to to the Lord and continuing to ask for prayer. And so in those, those moments when, when you really thought like, I might lose another family member and you're having, I remember in your book, I don't want to give it all away because I want our listeners to go read your book. (laughs) Um, And it's so good. I read it in one day. And I love how you wrote it in like the first whole section is about your story with Joelle. And then Mm -hmm. the second section is about Ellis. But, um, but I remember you writing that just so many triggers being in the hospital again Mm -hmm. and in the, you know, signing the paperwork for the, Uh, life support and just all those different things. Like Mm -hmm. tell us, just walk us through just a little bit about what that was like, just being almost like, (laughs) is this the twilight zone? Like what is happening to me right now? Well, you know, between the whole event with Joelle, when he passed away and when she was on the ventilator, it was only a little bit more than a year and a half. So it was just so bizarre to be back in a situation of that magnitude so quickly. And even my friends that were coming to visit and be with me, I mean, they were even saying the same thing, like, how are we in this place again? And, you know, the sights and smells and sounds of a hospital, they are so triggering to me. Like even now, um, Mm. going to a hospital is really hard for me. Yeah. And that was a big thing that I was wrestling with, even in my conversations with God is like, how am I back in this place? If there's one family that's endured enough and should have met their quota, which that's not how it works. We all know that, that you feel almost like, come on, like I've suffered enough. I've been through enough. And so that was a lot of my conversations with him was, I don't understand. What was the point of allowing me to be pregnant? What was the point of me having this baby? What is the point of any of it if Mm. we wind back? up at the same, you know, place. And so, yeah, it was extremely difficult. It was the hardest, um, I've ever wrestled with God. And, you know, even when I was about to pull her off of the vent, you know, there's people just saying, just have faith, just have faith. And I'm saying, but I just did a year and a half ago and look what happened. You know, I don't have the faith. And so my friends and my family and everyone that loved me was like, okay, then we'll we'll do it for you. Mm. Just be you and be in the process and have grace for where you are and your struggles and your doubts. Like it's all okay. It's all okay Mm. to have all of those things. And so I always say the weirdest part of the story for me being in it was how 
full of faith I was for Joelle only to get the results I wasn't hoping for Mm. and how little faith I had with my daughter, Mm. but how I got even more than I could have ever imagined. Mm. So to me, like that's given me such freedom and a release to just be me and that I don't have to be anything. I don't have to be full of anything. I just Mm. have to be real and raw and vulnerable and always be willing to ask the questions. And he's okay with our questions, like Mm. every question I have, but just keep being willing to communicate and have that, that back and forth and that it's okay. He can Mm. handle it. That's so good. And that takes that, that pressure off us because it's not on us anyway. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I love how you articulated that, that you had all this faith that Joelle's going to have this miraculous recovery Mm -hmm. and you had as much faith as you possibly could. Mm -hmm. And then the outcome was tragic. And then with Ellis, you felt the opposite. And I think that is just such a clear picture of how that it is all in the Lord's hands. And we say that phrase like so easily, but I think that when we live it out, we actually do kind of take some of that on us. Mm -hmm. And I also love the point you made about, your friends being faith for you. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we've all been, we've all walked through circumstances with friends, with family that are just unthinkable. Mm -hmm. And we've been their prayer partners, their prayer warriors, just that visual picture of that. You're just exhausted in the hospital room, but there's just these warriors in your room that are standing in the gap for you and they're standing in faith. And, those people were holding you up. Yes. And I would think about how many people told me they were praying. And I'm like, even if a tenth of those are people are praying, that's still thousands mm-hmm. and thousands of people. And at one point with Ellis, we even came up with a prayer, just one mm. singular prayer. And we put it out there, like, let's all pray and believe this together. Mm. And so that was cool, too, because I was thinking about all the thousands of people saying the same prayer of belief um, on our behalf. Mm. So what was that prayer you prayed over her? Oh, my goodness. It was so long. I couldn't oh. even tell <laughs> okay. you. Like, I have it <laughs> framed in her room. It's oh, a couple awesome. paragraphs long, but it was just talking about that, you know, she'll live and that her light will shine, mm. you know, bright for him and that she will move mountains and just all these things that we believe for her and just mm. everybody like believing that together and with such force. Mm. It was just so powerful. I remembered the moving mountains part mm-hmm. and I know you've added that as part of her nursery that mm-hmm. you found it that quote written that she will move mountains. Mm -hmm. And that was, I I remembered those words. I couldn't remember the rest of what you had asked people to pray. So what was that crazy moment like when they had to take her off of life support and you're holding your baby girl, you've Mm -hmm. been here again before, nothing can prepare you for that. But then it turned. Mm -hmm. Just putting her on my chest. I had given a lot of thought to how I wanted to say goodbye because I felt like with her dad, everything was just such a blur that I hadn't thought out, thought it out well, which nobody would. I mean, Mm -hmm. clearly, but here I was with the opportunity to do it a second time, um, unfortunately. So I kind of had some time to think. So like the night before with a nurse, we cut locks of her hair and Mm -hmm. we made molds of her hands and her feet and um, I said, when she comes off the vent, I want her on my chest, skin to skin, and I want to be able to read her her first book because I've mm-hmm. never read to her. So it was just all very peaceful. And it was crazy because my parents and um, two of my best friends, they were in the room with me when Joelle died and they were in the room with me with her too. And so just being able to like look over and see these people that were so faithful mm-hmm. um, to me and to my story be there was so calming. And yeah, it was, it was actually peaceful. Like I was crying and sobbing and, and all the things, all the emotions that you would feel, but I was glad that I had thought yes. so clearly about how I wanted to say goodbye. And those moments yeah. were very precious. And you would have no regrets. Absolutely. And then she just kept breathing. 
She actually started breathing. Was mm-hmm. she because she wasn't breathing on her own before, right? Correct. And then was it just as soon as they put her on your chest? She they was... put her on my chest, and they had a little thing attached to her foot where they could monitor her out in the nurses' station. So the whole thing was they were going to come in and like tell me for sure when she had passed, like when her heart had stopped, mm-hmm. and all these things. And so they were monitoring it, and she was breathing just really shallow. And she would just wasn't moving. She just nuzzled into me, you know, mm. and at one point she cried. And that was amazing because I thought I would never get to hear her cry again because oh. she had been, you know, had the tube down her throat and everything. Yeah. And, and so she was just so still and I was rocking her and I kept thinking, I kind of think she's breathing. So my dad would go out and get updates from the nurses and just every hour they would say, okay, she's breathing. Her pulse ox is good. Her blood pressure is good. Her heart rate is actually perfect. And as that would go on hour after hour, like you could feel a shift in the room, Mm. like maybe is against all odds. Like, do we finally get the miracle this time? And Mm. doctors didn't know what to think. They released us the next day to a floor and like a, they call it a butterfly room, which is where you go to have time with your children before they die. And Mm. then after a week there, they're like, well, we'll send you home on hospice. And then after like a couple weeks on hospice, they were like, this child is not going to die. We can remove her from hospice. And so it was just, just kind of these few weeks of everybody except for us I mean after the first day when she didn't die I was like this kid I mean there is purpose there is something going on here you know that is moving those mountains yes exactly (laughs) oh my goodness I just that yeah I I wasn't sure if we would have time today to talk about Ellis's story because it's just so powerful and I there's so many more details in your book. Um, so it was probably, you would say, a couple of months before you really started like feeling like, okay, we can live life and it's going to be the three of us. And my daughter lived. Yes. And- <laughs> yes, it was about year three. Year one was really hard. Year two was really hard. That was the year that she'd gotten sick. But year three, I started feeling like I always characterize it as being open to possibility, not dating per se, because so many of my friends were like, and this was the common phrase, you're young, you'll remarry. And I'm like, Mm. I don't want to remarry. I mean, I would actually get angry if people would bring it up because you don't just like get rid of of one marriage and just move on to the next. That doesn't heal everything, you know? And so when people would talk to me about dating, I just was never interested. And I was just wanting to, to live life with just me and my kids. Mm -hmm. But around year three, I just started, I was like, okay, I'm open to possibility, whatever that means. And for me, that didn't even really mean dating. I was looking at like, do I stay in Oklahoma? Do I move somewhere else? Mm. What's my next career path? Because I had quit my corporate job. And so all of these things are kind of percolating in my head. I'm trying to just figure out what's next. And I, I was you know, just starting to work out again and just get healthy again and like healthy in my mind and in my body and all these things. And so I was just getting to this place where I was like feeling, starting to feel like myself again and starting to feel open to what was next. Mm. When then I'm at dinner with our mutual friends Uh and I get a ping on my Instagram of somebody that started following me. And so I look and our friend is like, what's going on? Because I guess my face just went completely (laughs) white. And I'm like, my high school sweetheart just followed me on Instagram. And she's like, oh, okay, that's nice. And I'm like, no, like, this is the boy I dated all throughout all three years. This was the first love, you know, a very significant (laughs) relationship in my life. And it is 
a very big deal that he's following me because we had not talked for 13 years, I think it was. I mean, we had literally, I broke up with him. He graduated a year before me. I broke up with him. He likes to make it known to everyone that I broke his heart. (laughs) And then we just, he went off to college and I finished my senior year and then I went off to college and then moved to New York and we just went our separate ways. Um, And so I never in a million years thought I would be hearing from him again. So how did he even find you? And what, I mean, now that on this side of it, what was he thinking? He totally, like, looked for me. (laughs) He was stalking. Let it be known to all the world that he was, was, you know, poking around and finding, you know, what I was up to. Did he have a clue about your story or anything? He had actually seen an article about us in the newspaper because it had been on the front page of the Daily Oklahoma and on the Sunday paper, which is like the big one, you know. And they had five or six pages. And so he was in a convenience store one day. And he's like, oh, my my goodness, this is like my old girlfriend and picks up the newspaper wow. and reads it and just cannot believe, you know, what all I've endured. And so, yeah, then he reached out to me. And of course, me and the girlfriend are talking about, do you follow him back? I don't know. Yeah. You know, it's What's this big the protocol? Because this is the year 2016 at that point in time. And so everything's, you know, do I follow back? Do I, you know, what right. do I do? And so I waited about 24 hours and I followed him back and then he sent me a message and then, I mean, all bets were off. Like really? within that day, I was just like, oh my goodness, we just, we had the same banter. We had the same, you know, the ease that was always a part of our relationship oh was still there, but now we were grown ups and we were <laughs> mature and we both lived some life and we we're at a way better position to be back into each other's lives. Wow. So what was that? A little bit of the, just the mental, I'm sure there was, although this is the man, you've loved him before, mm-hmm. you've known him forever. And but, never stopped loving him, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But yet, you know, you've, like you said, when, when you first lost your, your husband, you were like, mm-hmm. I'll never marry again. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure there was a bit of this mental and emotional um, battle that you're going through where your heart's kind of getting, you know, mm-hmm. these butterflies and these yeah. feelings again, but then it's like, no, what's, what's the responsible thing to yes. do or what's the right thing to do? What's the honoring, you yes. know, what was, what was that walk? Well, like? and we were very, very careful and delicate with each other's hearts. And that's the thing. Like, I feel like this could have never happened with anybody but him. Mm. I had a trust and a foundation with him. Mm. So when he came in, he was very um, just respectful of me as a human being that he's known for 20 some odd years, you know? And so we were like, okay, how do we do this in a way where we figure us out and we involve the kids at the right time? Cause you know, he had had three from a previous relationship and then I had my two. And so we're, you know, trying to figure out how do we like ingrain all these things. And Mm -hmm. we took about a month or two of just us just figuring it out and talking on the phone and going on dates before we introduced anybody um, else into the Mm -hmm. picture. And his kids are a little older, so mm -hmm. they would be more aware. I mean, right away they would have been, whereas yours probably you could have introduced him and then. Yeah. Yeah. My kids don't remember life without him because they were one in three. Yeah. Um, but his kids were a little older, but he had never introduced them to another woman, okay. you know, so it was a very serious thing. And we took it very seriously right. from the very start. How are we going to do this? And I was saying those first two months, my heart and my head were kind of a mess because mm-hmm. like on one hand, here's this man that's amazing and I've known for so long and he's so comforting. But then on the other hand, like I hadn't, when we went on our first date, I was like, I haven't gone on a date in like 13 years and yeah. here you are. And I hadn't even expected to be with anybody so it really did take my mind 
a while. Like, my heart was, like, there very quickly, you know, but yes. it took my mind and the analytical part of me, like, should I be doing this, you know? Right. It was, it was, it was hard. It was a hard first couple of months for us to navigate mm. through, but thankfully we had that love and that foundation mm. that we, it just carried us through the hard mm. parts. Patience for each yes. other, probably. Yes. Was your family pretty supportive right away? They were not all that happy and very confused. <laughs> like, I don't think they would mind me saying that. I Because, and all of my friends were, like, it literally went from me being the Sarah that never wanted this to, hey, let me introduce you to this guy that, like, I've known since I was a kid. And we, you yes. know, and it was very serious very quickly. And so I think for a lot of people, it just took time to wrap their head around everything mm-hmm. changing. And, you know, with my family, even they were still grieving, you know, too. And so yeah. everybody was at different places and spaces. And so, you know, at first, I think it was very surprising. And that was another thing we just had to navigate yes. with my family and my late husband's family. And how do we tell them? And yes. I mean, there's so many components oh that gosh. at first it seemed so exhausting. And there were times I was like, is this even worth it? I mean, <laughs> you know, not because I didn't love him, but just because right. it was just so much to think about. Yeah. And he just kept saying, take my hand and let's keep going. And mm-hmm. so that's what we did. We just kept going through each hurdle. And yeah. even today now, it's just take my hand and let's keep going. Let's keep going. Mm-hmm. So what are some of those things that you've set up in your marriage? Because you do have this unusual situation where there is another man that you've loved and mm-hmm. you have two children from Joel. And so um, I would imagine like saying his name and talking about him and telling stories and raising, you know, Milo and Ellis to know what they can know about their dad, but then also honoring their new stepdad. And so what, like, if I'm thinking we may have listeners who, whether it's through death or divorce or whatever their circumstance, they've got, you know, other people in their life that they've loved Mm -hmm. and what would be some encouragement you would give how to do that in a healthy way. We always have said that Joel will never be a forbidden subject in our house. And so there's pictures in the kids room um, of their dad. D'Angelo, my new husband has just been so respectful in that regard. He lost his mom to cancer Mm. um, in his twenties, which was kind of another common thing that Mm. we bonded on. So he understood loss and he understood death and he understood the death of a parent. And so that part of it was just such a gift. Mm. And he's always been so kind and so tender um, to my kids' needs and their hearts' needs in that regard. Um, you know, they call D'Angelo dad, but they also say that they have another dad, Joel, in heaven. So mm-hmm. they, they get and understand that there's, you know, more than, you know, one dad and more than one person that loved them. Um, I think that they're very grateful, as am I, for them to have a physical dad here with yes. them because that's something that I I had grieved because I thought my children would never get to experience mm-hmm. having a dad. And even though, like, I would be a kick butt mom, you know, for them. Like I still wanted them to have to be lacking in in nothing and not that they would be lacking, but you know what I mean? I wanted them to experience both parents if they could. And you know that Joel, that if Joel had the the option he would want, I mean, you would assume he would want them to have a dad to teach them and love them and support them. Absolutely. So we talk about him and we, it's really cool because I do this thing called the Choose Joy Project every year on the anniversary of Joel's death to mm-hmm. honor him just by doing random acts of kindness. And ever since D'Angelo has come into the picture, he's done it with us every year. Mm-hmm. And this year we even joined um, forces with the nonprofit that he works for and involved huh. the kids at that nonprofit. Oh, and wow. so it's just really cool to see the things that he's embraced about um, our past and our story. And he's always the first person to champion mm-hmm. all of the members of our family in it. So that's one mm-hmm. of another thing that makes him special amongst a lot of other 
<laughs> oh, I think that's such a cool. I'm I'm glad you pointed that out because I think it's so cool that sometimes for for fear of awkwardness, yeah. we just don't go into those like uncomfortable topics. Mm-hmm. But then, as you said, you've just gone head on through them, and now here you are merging two families, mm-hmm. two you know nonprofits. Like mm-hmm. the, it's like I feel like most people once you breach the conversation are going to be okay with it. Like they're Mm going to be open and they're going to, and if they're not okay at first, like you can talk through that and you can share, you know, your, um, your feelings, honestly. But I I do think that we lose so much when we just don't have those conversations Mm -hmm. for fear of the awkwardness or making someone feel uncomfortable. Well, and for widows in general, like it takes a special man. It takes Mm. a special man to be the next relationship. And, don't ever be willing to settle for anything less than that special person because you do come with a lot and you have endured a lot and you have lived through a lot and your kids have lived through a lot and it's a really special dynamic. Mm. And, um, I always say I couldn't have been anyone, but this man, I mean, Mm. this was the man for me that the only one that would have been special enough for me to try to make it work and who would have been special enough to take what comes with us. Mm -hmm. And so if you find yourself compromising in that area, it may be time to reevaluate that relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, But you need to have somebody that's willing to take everything that comes with you. Mm, Certainly. That's a good word. You know, you mentioned um, widows just having special circumstances and and needs. I would love to ask you just as the church, big C, Mm -hmm. you know, how, how can we help families? How can we help widows and even specifically younger Mm -hmm. ones that I feel like, in a lot of ways, our senior adult ministries are kind of set up to do that because like you said, there's, there's almost like sadly a community built in there where you're, you're at least probably going to know one other woman who mm-hmm. has lost a spouse later in life. But when you are young and you have small children, um, you know, you said you felt just really alone and like the only one, is there anything that you can think of that was helpful or looking back you wish had happened or, you know, how can we just as believers really come around and support So when we talk about the church, we can talk about it in the context of the church as an organization and the programs within the organization, Mm -hmm. um, which of course is part of it and they do their part. But I'd more so talk about the church as in us, the people, you know, so us as people, um, what we can do. And this is something that our family just does always is look for the neediest among you, look Mm. for the neediest around you who has a need. How can we need it? And if everybody did that within the sphere of community and influence and people that they're around, like there wouldn't be anybody needy because we'd Mm. be meeting those needs. Um, But I think we get so, as a people, self-consumed with ourselves and what's going on with ourselves and what we have going on that we just think it would be too much effort to meet somebody else's need when it really takes very little effort. Mm. Um, I just would sometimes have friends that would invite me to come along with them to do things or um, some some of my girlfriend's husbands, when they knew that I had wanted this place set for my son, mm-hmm. they all joined forces and just came out and built it. Mm. And, you know, I've had people just come and mow my lawn whenever I, you know, had whenever I couldn't get to it or, you know, it's just practical things. Mm. But and I know I mentioned it before really practically, but I can't get away from the practicality because that's what we need the most. And that's how we show love and compassion and grace to people. Mm. The most is just looking and 
meeting the need. And, you know, the church can do it as with their programs and organizations, but we as a people can do it by just opening our eyes to mm-hmm. what's around us and what people need. Mm-hmm. And if we open and we listen and we're attentive, we'll know. Mm-hmm. We just sometimes don't want to because it's not convenient. I mm-hmm. mean, truthfully, it's not convenient to want to go out and help somebody or to invite a widow along or to like give a few hours of your time on a Saturday. It's not. So we want to pretend sometimes mm-hmm. that we don't, we don't see that need, but if we'll open our eyes and our ears, we'll see it. Mm-hmm. But I love that it, it is really so simple and practical, mm-hmm. just like we talked about earlier. It's just the things that you're doing in your regular life, mm-hmm. look outside and see, well, who else yeah. might need this? Who yes. else needs dinner tonight? Who yes. needs their lawn mowed? Mm-hmm. Who, like you said, building a play set or, mm-hmm. you know, going over and saying, can we clean your house? Or, you know, just, or, this... Hey, we're going to a basketball game. We've got a few extra tickets. Well, yes. there's a mom and her son who would like love to come along and just be a part. And I think sometimes people are like, well, I don't want her, I don't want to make her feel bad by having oh. her a part of our family dynamic. Well, you know, it feels worse being shunned and nobody asking you to ever leave your house or do anything mm. because you don't fit into to their dynamic. Mm. You know what I mean? Yes. And so when people would like go past their comfort zones in that area and reach out and include us, oh my goodness, it meant the world to me because mm. not a lot of people were doing it. And it was just mm. that small handful of people that were so faithful and being that for mm. me that were life-changing um, partners in my journey. Yeah, I do remember one of your posts, whether I can't remember if it was in um, your book or just one of your blog posts, but you did mention and you're very, I love your writing because it's so honest, not in like an ugly, like, you know, in your face, but it's just very honest and heartfelt, but it always has just a very poignant message. And I remember you saying that something that was hard was that at the very beginning, there were so many, it was Mm -hmm. like this mass of people who wanted to pray for you and love you and come around your family. And then it was kind of like, as the months went by you know, it kind of whittled back to your few. And at first, um, it was so heartbreaking. And then you kind of came to realize like, these are my people. It kind of helped you realize it all shook out of these are my people. Yeah. And even statistically, I mean, widows lose about 70% of their friendships, um, just because you don't really fit into the mold or dynamic that you used to, you know, I wasn't part of a couple anymore. Mm -hmm. So none of my couple's friends, a lot of them quit coming around because mm. I wasn't the person that they could have their Friday night couples date night with anymore mm. or go to the, you know, event or whatever. And so naturally, just because you're not in the same life space as others, you'll have the people that move away. But also in tragedy, there always seems to be an overabundance of people that are really drawn in and attracted to being a part of the initial event. But there's so few that are willing to walk out Mm. the days after. And so, yeah, it was for me this time where I was really grieved. Wow. Like all these people that were here, they told me I'll be here for you for, for, you know, for forever. I'll be consistent. And they were well-intentioned people and that meant it in the moment, but they Mm -hmm. did not have for whatever reason, the ability within them to Mm -hmm. be there for the long haul. So I did have to grieve all those people that I felt had quote unquote lied to me, Mm -hmm. which they didn't intentionally. It is what it is, but yeah, grieving that, but then you can look at it that way and keep you know, being upset about that, or you can look Mm -hmm. over and say, look at these people that have like walked through fire with me. And I know they're like my ride or dies for life because they have been consistent in every season, every moment, no matter what changed, they were there. So those, my circle is small. 
uh, my circle could be larger if I wanted, but I just want to keep yeah. it really small and intimate to the people that I know have walked with me through the mm-hmm. fire and will be there, whatever may come. Mm-hmm. That's so important. I mean, honestly, we all, I think at first, well, it depends on your personality type, but I think for some at first, the big circle seems like, oh, that's so awesome. Yeah. You would have like 20 girlfriends or yeah. 12 girls to get to, you know, dinner with. Yeah. But I think gosh, I would rather have four or five, like you said, the ride or dies that you Mm -hmm. know, no matter what you can count on Mm -hmm. than, you know, 15 people who are hit and miss, you know? So I, although that is incredibly heartbreaking to walk through, I think on the other side of it, you see like, well, these friendships are so deep and intimate Mm -hmm. that this is what I need, Mm -hmm. you know? And now you have a wonderful husband Mm -hmm. to be a best friend as well. And so you know that he's there for you. Yes, absolutely. How long was your dating with him and how I know you said it kind of got serious pretty quick just Uh because your history and where you were in life and so yeah we were engaged within like 10 or 11 months and then got married the following month so we got back together and were married uh within a year yeah so it was very quickly I mean we knew within like the first week I was like uh oh I think we both were like we're in trouble right (laughs) because this is gonna this is not just gonna be casual it can't be casual and our feelings aren't casual and so yeah it all evolved very quickly and how long how long goes that how long have y'all been married now September 1st will be our one year anniversary oh my goodness so we're, we're coming, coming up on it it's a week yes. and a half so, so you have a year under your belt yes newlyweds kind of mm-hmm. although you've both been married before so mm-hmm. some of that is a little bit different mm-hmm. but what is that first year what would you say if you were gonna Oh, Tell man. us how your first year has been. Goods, bads, everything in between. Yes. You know, so much good and so much hard. I mm-hmm. wouldn't say as much hard between the two of us, but just the merging of families and a completely new life dynamic mm-hmm. for all seven of us. <laughs> um, it's a lot and it has been a lot. Um, I don't want to be dishonest and say it's, you know, roses and puppies and all that because right. it's not. It's difficult. Um, but neither one of us would ever choose differently and yeah. we love each other and we love our family and we love what we've created and put together. Um, but it is a process and yeah. blending is a process and finding our normal as a family is a process. And I feel like we're just kind of starting to somewhat get into our stride of like what we've established our values are going to be in our foundation, you know, through the first year, those are the things that you're still kind of like figuring right. out and right. he's bringing a whole different parenting style. And then yeah. I have my whole different parenting style and how do we complement each other it's not like we're newlyweds and we're just having fun all the time I mean we're newlyweds but like bam insta family right. of five kids and schedules and it's and been a lot absolutely calendar. schedules and mm-hmm. And then yeah. just the having having his three fifty percent of the time, yeah. and so I would say, I, I from other friends of mine that share kids, you know, you've got your one week is this way, and then the yeah. next week is a different way. Yeah, or, and, and it's so, an adjustment. It's a, an adjustment for my kids. You know, when the other kids are gone, they get all sad and mopey because they're not running around like a tribe having fun. (laughs) Thankfully, our kids, this has been a biggest blessing is our kids since the very first day they met each other, like fell in love. So our kids have always gotten along and his kids have always loved me and my kids have always loved him. So Mm. that's one thing that blended families can be a struggle that we thankfully never had to experience. Um, so we never had to work through hard feelings of resentment or Mm -hmm. anger testing or any of that. Like, thankfully we got to skip all that and we just got to go to the part where we're just like establishing our new normal. If you were to look back and say a couple of things that you're like, okay, we did 
a couple things right. Like if you were going to tell a family who's just 10 months behind you and they're not to their one year yet, like what are some things that you think, okay, these are non-negotiables. We did these Mm -hmm. things and I'm so glad we did. Mm -hmm. For me, it's like a different dynamic with his kids, I think, than he is with mine because, you know, he's dealing with kids that have lost a father. So I couldn't really speak for him on what his dynamic was. But for me with his kids, it's just loving them. Um, loving them well is loving him well. Mm. And so that's kind of been like my mantra from the beginning. Um, and just taking it slow, um, with them and allowing things to develop at their pace, Mm. um, always being respectful to their other side of the family and Mm -hmm. never, um, you know, having any contention, never saying anything, dishonoring or disrespectful, yeah. um, has been another non-negotiable, yeah. um, for us just having our time together as a family where we're really intentional about time with our kids. Um, our kids of amongst themselves, they developed this thing that they love to do with us every couple of months where we'll go around the table and we each say one thing that we love about, you oh. know, the other person within our family and just oh. like building each other up and, kind of another mantra that I say all the time is like, we get to use our words to tear down or build up. And so Mm -hmm. as a family, we're very consistently trying to build each other up Mm -hmm. with our words. So yeah, that would be the main things with this kids is just respectful where they're coming from, letting things develop at their Mm -hmm. own pace and loving them well, which is loving their dad. Well, Mm -hmm. you're just setting this foundation, you know, of love and trust Mm -hmm. and those Uh, just wonderful, encouraging words. I mean, you're really just cultivating an atmosphere where everyone in the seven of you can grow in love and in relationship. And I love that you said letting it grow at its own pace. Cause I do think too, maybe a temptation would be to like, want like instant, like BFFs from day one and to remember like, we're in this for the long haul and you will be siblings forever. But like, just to let everybody grow in those relationships. And mm-hmm. it sounds like they really have hit it off from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, but just giving them that space mm-hmm. to grow in those relationships. Yeah. And we try to just not treat anyone different. We call them all our kids. We don't yeah. differentiate between my kids or your That's kids good. or biological or step. We just, they're all brothers and sisters mm-hmm. and they're all our kids. And um, I try to, I work really hard not to show any kind of preference towards the younger, the younger ones or their older ones. And mm-hmm. you know, if I, if I discipline one, I'm disciplining the other and I'm getting onto this one for the same thing I would get onto that one. So just the mm. consistency, I feel like has set a foundation of trust that they know, okay, Sarah's not going to be over here, like letting Milo roll the roost and like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. So just being consistent and always with them, consistently mm-hmm. showing up, consistently disciplining, consistently loving. That's been a major thing. It's mm, really good. Oh my goodness. Well, the Lord has just like you kind of felt like in the hospital, like the Lord has shown a light on this and, and for whatever reason allowed these things to happen that gave you this platform Mm -hmm. to where people were watching and continue to, and your writing continues to be so poignant and honest and just really relevant to our culture today. I'm just really proud to follow along with you and see what God's doing in your heart. And just one last little left turn I want to take before Mm -hmm. we start to kind of like land the interview. You wrote a a piece recently about racial reconciliation, and Mm -hmm. you mentioned in your intro that you guys have a multiracial family. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of a big cultural buzzword right now. And I'd love to hear just um, from a mom who kind of married into and has had this just land in your lap and then you've been able to watch a little bit from the outside but also from the inside Mm -hmm. what this looks like and what this feels like in our culture like what words would you speak to that 
Well, we like to jokingly call our family the United Nations because <laughs> from, my children are half Spanish, half Caucasian, and then his children are half Caucasian, half African American. Then he's African American, I'm Caucasian. So we have all of these mix of like colors and cultures, and we like would not have it any other it's way. So beautiful. Yes, we love it. We love the, all the mixture. But I would say that. Um, within our family and within our four, four walls is our safe place where mm-hmm. there's nothing but love and acceptance. When we go outside of our four walls, we do experience um, things, especially when it's my husband and I. Okay. Um, you know, we'll we'll be out and people will give us dirty looks or they'll slam a door in our face or, you know, even like look away in disgust or, or say mm. things. And, you know, that's difficult and it's hard. And, and honestly, like that is hard to believe in 2018. Yeah, yeah. Like as you're saying this, mm-hmm. I just, I mean, obviously I cannot imagine doing mm-hmm. that or thinking that. And so yeah. it just really shocks me yeah. that there would still be people who would have that type of an attitude. Yeah. Um, well, and that's because we grew up with the skin color of being white. And so we were privileged. They talk about white privilege. Like that's a word that you hear, but it's a real thing because we don't ever experience the kind of things that just my husband as an African American male, you know, when we'll walk into a store, they'll greet me and say hello to him and won't say anything to him or they'll say hello to me, I'm sorry, and won't say anything to him. Or they'll, like, Mm. let me shop, or they'll follow him around to make sure that he's not shoplifting. Mm. You know, just little things like that. That's the reality that he lives in every single day that we never experience just because of the skin color that we grew up Mm. in. And so we have come so far as a society, um, but I feel like we still have a really long way to go. Mm. Um, and we still have, there's so much that can still be done. And, you know, we're, we're fortunate that we have never experienced or live in that kind of dynamic that, that many African American people still do today. And, Mm. you know, we feel it and we experience it. So it hits closer to home. You Mm. know, even my husband, if he, you know, I asked him one day, why do you always drive like the exact speed limit? And it's, I don't want to get pulled over. I don't want to have any trouble. I just want to, you know, abide by the exact, and he will not hardly ever like, Mm. because there is a a profiling that happens sometimes with him just because Mm. of the color of his skin. And he just wants to avoid that inner interaction at all Mm. so he's just going to abide by the letter and those are things that I never think about because I'll go five to ten over all the time and not give it a second thought so you know he's opened my eyes to a lot of things that I wasn't even aware that still existed and that saddens me to see still exist um but for me I don't ever want to be the voice of somebody that that gets it all and that has all the answers or that understands it but I can be the voice of somebody that says it still exists and we've got to do better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Would you offer any suggestions or just simple practical ways on how, and mm-hmm. um, just in our own little families, like how we can be part of that getting better solution as we're raising kids in this yeah. world? Yeah, I think just creating an, a space where we're telling our kids that all are equal. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. matter. And the really funny thing is, is that kids, if you start at a young age, they just really don't even know or differentiate color mm-hmm. at some point within their lives. That becomes a thing you know, taught or not, I don't know. I've never even told my kids that their, their dad D'Angelo is African American Mm -hmm. and my kids have never even mentioned his skin color. Yeah, And so it's like, 
it's not even a thing to them. I feel like kids are just born with this innate sense of just like, oh, it is what it is. We are who we are. And I don't know how along the way that gets skewed. But in our house, we're not going to let it get skewed. And we make sure that we integrate and we have a lot of people from different cultures and different colors. Like that's very important to me is to not just have, you know, one skin tone in our house all the time. Um, but have lots of people from different places and different, and it just makes their, my kids experience richer when Mm -hmm. they, you know, grow up amongst people that look different from them and they learn differently. So I I think that that would be the big thing is just teaching your kids from a young age, all are equal and it doesn't matter. And we're just all different shades of like the same skin and nobody's better than the other or worse or anything. Like we all have these beautiful ways of living culturally and these different ways that we look and like all of it is beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. I I don't know if it's just, you know, our generation versus our kids, but Mm -hmm. I feel like we've had a very similar conversation with our children in where we started to have this conversation like you know all skin tones are equal and everyone Mm -hmm. no matter who they are is special and our kids looked at us like of course like why are you even saying this and so I'm hopeful that each generation gets farther and farther from the just the type of world that we came from and like you said there is still some of that profiling going on but I do feel like and I hope and maybe it's just me being (laughs) Polly in a person, yeah. <laughs> but I hope that, you know, even in our our kids next generation, I just see, I do feel like I see less of that, but you're right. It does take just having those conversations and, mm-hmm. and, um, setting that tone in our own homes mm-hmm. and exposing our kids to people of all walks and yeah. all places and yeah. just really establishing that, that we're all equal mm-hmm. and we're all made by God and we're all special. Mm-hmm. And I think us just from a Caucasian woman's um, perspective, just being really sensitive when somebody of another skin tone, um, or race is saying that they're still experiencing, Mm. you know, giving validation to what they're experiencing, because I think it's so easy to say, really? Well, we had this person in leadership and this person's on TV. Like we've come far Mm. and that there's truth. There's also a lot of validity to what they're experiencing on a day-to-day basis. Um, things of which we have no knowledge or understanding of because we've never had to exactly. to walk in their shoes. And so when somebody, and this goes across the board for race, widowhood, single mom, whatever. I mean, the overarching thing is if somebody is telling you, you know, of what they're experiencing and they're experiencing hardship, like, let's just have our hearts soften to that. And let's just be willing to listen mm. when people are saying it. I love the question, like, how can we do better? Like, that's something that we should all be asking mm-hmm. instead of saying, well, you've come so far, you should, you should be happy. Mm-hmm. You know, you should be happy with where we're at. No, you know, these things are still happening and we still have a really long way to go and we can all do better. Mm-hmm. We can all do better. Such a good, such a good word. Uh, you, I, I just really so appreciate your honesty, your vulnerability today. And I feel like in all, all the different uh, phases of your life here, as you've talked and you've shared with us, you have been such a voice of wisdom and truth. And so I have no doubt that our listeners are going to be encouraged. And I feel like if I was listening, like I want to take notes, I'll probably when I go back and edit this, I'll write a few things down because you are just so full of wisdom and hope. And I so appreciate you being here today. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Um, So our listeners know the way I end every interview, since this is the Uniquely Beautiful Stories podcast, and we always look backward and talk about the ways that God's brought you from sometimes difficult places to where we are. and, And we can always look and see the beauty. I 
also like to just circle back to current life. And so this can be something from serious to silly, but I would ask you, what is making your life beautiful today? What's making my life beautiful (laughs) is seeing the redemption in our story. And I remember whenever times were the hardest and my life was anything but normal and I'm spending weekends in hospitals or whatever, Mm. um, and the battles were so intense and I thought... I just want a simple, normal life. Hmm. Um, And even though my life is still not simple or normal, (laughs) I find so much beauty and joy in the simple moments of my life because I never again thought that I would be married. I never thought I would be you know, mom and stepmom to five kids, yes. you know, I, I've been able to move to this home on land, which had was a dream of mine for so many years. And so I just love going mm. and sitting on my porch and just seeing the trees and the grass and everything stretch out before me, because those are things that I never thought I'd have in mm. moments that I never thought I'd experience. And I think that that's a gift that death really brings mm. is putting into focus what's important and putting into focus um, what things about life that we should hold dear and appreciate. Mm. And so that is a gift um, that I'm forever and eternally grateful that I've gotten mm. to um, experience from death. And so that's, what's beautiful to me now. Mm. The other night, my husband and I were both cooking dinner in the kitchen and I just stopped for a moment and like my kids were there and they were playing and we were cooking and it was just something so simple, but mm. I just felt wells of gratitude and gratefulness because I didn't think I would ever have a moment like that. And mm. so I think that that's something that if I would encourage everybody just to stop and find the gratefulness and joy and the beauty and even the mundane and the small mm. moments. And that's what I try to do. Mm. And that's what's the most beautiful part of my life right now. Mm. I love that. Oh my goodness. Well, Sarah, I have no doubt that some of our listeners are going to want to connect with you. And so um, I know I cannot recommend enough this book. It's called From Depths We Rise. And I'm sure they can find that Amazon, mm-hmm. any other places where we buy books. Yes. Um, and then you've got your blog, which is journeyofsarah.com. And then on social media, you're also Journey of Sarah. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So everything Instagram. is Journey of Sarah with an H. So Instagram, Facebook, um, what's the other one? Twitter. Yes. Yeah. And then my blog, it's all Journey of Sarah. So okay. Wonderful. keeps it consistent. You make it easy for us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again for being here. Yes, and listeners, thank you for tuning in. And Sarah and I just want to encourage you today to go out and experience even the most simple parts of your life to find that gratitude, that joy, that thankfulness for the life. Life that you're living and just go out and experience your one uniquely beautiful story. Thank you for listening to uniquely beautiful stories with Heather McInear. Share this podcast with a friend and subscribe. So you'll never miss an episode. Now go live your own story. 